This is a special series of the Act On podcast, exploring the challenges Londoners are facing during the coronavirus outbreak and what we can do to overcome them and support one another. This is Act On Bereavement. Hello, my name is Robin Hewings and I work for the Campaign to End Loneliness. Bereavement is an important issue for us because it is the single risk factor most likely to cause loneliness, particularly loneliness that becomes chronic, which is our key concern. Thrive London have helped bring together a great set of speakers to talk about this issue with a mixture of personal and professional perspectives. Firstly, my colleague Andy Nazer, Campaigns Manager at the Campaign to End Loneliness. Thanks, Robin. Hello, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be joining uh, such company today to talk about such an important issue. Uh, my own experience uh, with uh, bereavement has been exacerbated somewhat uh, over the last year uh, since uh, I lost my wife, uh, the most significant person that's ever been in my life, really. Um, and I'm gradually working my way through the grief. No way am I at the end of it, but I'm on the case, so to speak. Um, and we're also joined by Douglas McGregor, who uh, is, a, is a musician and has also had a real focus on this issue. So, Douglas. Oh yeah, yes, a pleasure to be here. Um, yes, my name is Douglas McGregor. I'm a musician and I'm also a writer. And I founded a website recently called Songs of Loss and Healing, which is um, is uh, something trying to explore the relationship between uh, uh, loss and grief in music and how music can be used as a tool in our in our process of grief. Thank you, Douglas. And we're also joined, and finally we're joined by Deborah, um, who, Deborah Bowman, who is a bioethicist and the deputy principal at St George's Hospital. Hello, everyone. Um, so, yes, that's my academic role. I've always been interested in death and dying um, professionally. I've worked quite a lot with a number of different organisations, hospices, crews, a wonderful organisation called Life, Death, Whatever. And I've also faced my own mortality when I was diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago. So thank you. I think that um, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, and what I want to do is to try to... Um, we have some very personal stories here, which I think tell some larger truths. But what we can then do is move on to some of the uh, more academic evidence around uh, around bereavements and around also around what services there are to help people. So Andy kind of hinted at the, talk, talk briefly at the beginning about his own experience of grief, but it's something which is, has kind of mixed into his uh, professional life as someone who, who works in loneliness. Andy, would you be briefly be able to talk a bit about your, the story of the loss of your wife and how it's influenced you now? Yeah, certainly. Um, my wife died last February, in, uh, so that's in uh, 2019, uh, following 13 years of living with, and um, I guess the phrase is fighting cancer, but actually she very much embraced life uh, and, and really used life. Um, she was committed to creating a better world. And together we went on this journey that uh, had incredible highs, incredible lows, but um, we, had, we had a hell of a life, I can honestly say that. And I think uh, I would say that I believed anyway that I prepared myself um, for her loss in, in, in so many ways. 
Uh, I met so many bereaved people. I'd experienced the loss of my parents and some of my closest friends. And actually, just in the last few years, the loss of my father-in-law and, and indeed my oldest friend uh, passed away. Um, and I'd used those experiences really to shape up what I believed life was going to be like once my wife Angelica had passed away. Um, I'd started counselling. Uh, we'd had very open conversations between us, Angelica and I, about what life, how life might look once uh, she wasn't there. And I guess if any, uh, or certainly as I, as I thought, if anyone was ready uh, to take this on, uh, it was me. Um, but the reality is uh, that actually experiencing loss is intensely different from imagining how life will be after loss. And I knew loss and grief would be a painful experience, but I guess what I underestimated, and here speaks the campaign manager for the Campaign to End Loneliness, was just how vulnerable isolated and lonely it would make me feel and uh, I guess over the last year I've been working on all <laughs> I've been working on the isolation I've been working on the vulnerability I've been rebuilding putting new bricks down uh, but I can't say it's been easy at all uh, but slowly but slowly I'm getting somewhere. Thank you for sharing this that with us Andy um, Douglas I also want to, I know that you've also had personal experience with this which I think has driven a lot of your work as a musician yeah um so um my story starts with um my mother dying when i was seven years old and i had a i didn't grieve at the time and i think a lot of the reason for that was that society wasn't particularly good at dealing with um children and bereavement and and again this sort of british mentality of having a stiff upper lip and sweeping death under the carpet meant that i basically suppressed my grief and and that was you know 25 years of suppressed grief and then um i was a musician in the meantime and i think music is always a release it always even though i wasn't rationally conscious of uh of uh having grief i think uh, music always allowed me to express your know, excess anger frustration sadness or beauty but 25 years later when i finally came to grief and it bloody hit me like a hammer on the head when it, it came i really just turned to music and expressed all these incredibly conflicting emotions through music and it took me maybe two years to be able to express things with words but I felt like the music was allowing me to express those things far before I could put that into words because it works on such an emotional level and it was interesting what Andy was saying about vulnerability isolation and loneliness is exactly those sort of things are going through um myself and really sort of I was grieving out of time from everyone else and I think social maybe this is something we're also feeling right now because we're quite isolated um, from each other and we can't sort of go to a funeral and grieve together well this is kind of my experience as well I was grieving 25 years later than everyone else and so having this kind of intense feeling of isolation and loneliness and not being able to connect with people on, on what I was going through. Thank you, Douglas. And and Deborah, I think that um, you've talked about your own experiences with with, with cancer, um, but also you're a volunteer with Cruz, who are a charity who uh, work with people who are bereaved to help them. 
I think there was so much that both Andy and um, Douglas said that resonated personally and thinking about some of the the calls and conversations that I've had. The, the first thing was sometimes I've heard it described as being behind glass in the world, that actually the world is happening and you might be with people and you, they might be people you know very well, but actually that unknowability of, of, the, of what it is you're carrying. And I think the other thing that really struck me um, was that this sort of temporal, time-based element with, with both Andy and Douglas. So Andy talking about how as human beings, we sometimes try if we can to prepare ourselves and, and to anticipate that which is coming. But bereavement is, is both knowable and unknowable, and it's universal and individual. And that makes it incredibly difficult to get a hold of. It's such a slippery thing. And I think it's not uncommon for people to, to really go through um, phases when, so, so I can think of times I've had conversations with people where they haven't talked about the loss of, of whoever it was that was dear to them. And then something else is happening in their life that that makes it uh, live again in a way it hasn't been. Um, so a, a, an example is I can think of a, a woman who lost her own mum when she was a teenager. And it wasn't until she became pregnant herself that she really felt the force of that loss and that grief. Um, and so I, I think, there were, you know, there was so much in that openness. And, and I think there's also something about what we can and can't anticipate and I, I wish to tame the untamable and I guess thinking about it in advance is part of that and thinking if I only put these structures in place it, I'll manage it in some ways and yet it's this ungovernable thing and that makes it very frightening but it is also something that I think we can walk alongside each other as people go through this and and that connectedness can make a difference. It, it, it doesn't mean you know what someone's going through. It means you're prepared to hear as and when they want to talk to you. And they may not ever want to talk to you. It may be music or theatre or drama or um, novels or art that they communicate through. But there's just something about that capacity to, to walk alongside someone. Yes, I think I should say that um, this is a podcast, but if you could hear nodding, you'd um, be hearing a lot of nodding at what Deborah was just saying about um, about the value of um, walking alongside one, uh, each other, particularly when people uh, most need that. Um, and that's something which Andy's written and spoken about as well in his own experiences and how people can find that difficult. Andy, would you like to talk a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I thought, um, so uh, uh, over the last 10 years, I've been gathering the stories, I've been entering the lives of people and talking about their loneliness, and they've been sharing their stories. And I talked about this with my wife uh, before before she died. I thought, would I ever tell my story? Would Would it be right to tell my story? And actually, she came from, uh, uh, Andrea's father was a campaigner. Uh, more significant than I will ever be, <laughs> I might add. Um, and she said, you will use this, won't you? You will talk about this. You will share this. And Independent Age, which is a charity, uh, were uh, at that time uh, running a, a campaign and had a series 
of publications which was talking about grief. And the tag on that was, we must talk about death. We must talk about loss. We must somehow, we must find a way through. And I think what really helped me was that I could talk to my wife about loss. And she she was far more pragmatic than, than I am. Um, and she prepared. We, we knew after 13 years of many times we'd met that place whereby we thought we were going to be at the end. But actually, finally, we did ultimately reach that point. And, and, and the doctor said, really, this is it. You know, we can't push you anymore. You've, you've done incredibly well. And um, it's not that she wanted to accept that. Uh, she would have carried on fighting all the way uh, because then it really became a fight uh, for her life. But she used the time. She gave me these. She created these incredible spreadsheets, telling me where everything was, and what every date that birthdays occurred, and when insurances were due. And it was great that she spent all this time. And now I reflect back. But of course, the moment came when the spreadsheets ended, and I had to face reality of being a big boy on my own. Um, and uh, that, that was a hard one to take. But I am, I am happy to talk about this. I think it's important that we talk about end of life. It is, as they say, it's part of our life. And so many people are walking those streets, so many. And when you do share, as I have recently shared, I, I'm getting correspondence from all over the world. And I think particularly at the moment where Grief and loss is res resonating in our lives on a daily basis. We're reconnecting more and more with the loss that we've, uh, we've experienced ourselves because these are huge numbers that we're hearing every day. And even though we're, we're hopefully coming towards the peak of that damnable epidemic that, we're, that we've been living through, um, actually... These are lives. These are people that are good. We know those people that have experienced grief of, of, of the intensity that I have been experiencing. We know what it's like to have lost someone. I can't tell you what it must have been like to have lost someone via and, and not been with them at the very end and to have faced seeing their final words or their final breath through an iPad. Or have been that nurse or doctor that's holding that iPad to that face. I, I, I have not lived that. Or, or not be able to experience the ritual of a funeral. You know, my wife's own funeral, we had everything there. We were uh, 25 years in the music business where we're not going to get a production. We got a production. She would have expected it. I had to do it. But actually to deny people that opportunity, it's so, so sad. It really is and how they will cope with their grief and, and their mourning going forward. I really do. You know, I, I think so much of them uh, and for them and send them every best wish. Sentiments echoed. Douglas, I wonder whether you might be able to talk about um, experiences you've had of people walking alongside you. And, and, but, but you were also saying that it was difficult that with your own grief in many ways. It was, it was kind of 25 years later so that it, yeah. Well, I guess about this, I guess probably what's interesting for me or why I have a point to make is with uh, being able to talk about grief and how important it is to talk about it, because I think that was one of the reasons why I didn't grieve. And one of the things that really worries me about this pandemic is what we, is 
uh, coming together uh, for when someone dies is such an important part, the social element for that. And that's very much um, not here. And so and if, we, uh, if people don't talk about it properly, if people have to uh, suppress their grief or not experiencing the feelings and, and as they, not as they should, but uh, processing their feelings, uh, it kind of worries me that people might not be going about their grief in the not the right way i'm not expressing myself entirely right but not not, not coming to that grief in the healthiest way and i from my experience i uh, i know how much suppressed grief and not having processed grief can affect your life in all sorts of weird and not particularly nice ways so i think it's really important that we talk about it and we make sure that uh going through the rest of the pandemic and onwards that we carry on opening this conversation and and make sure people know to come to grief and know to be able to talk about their grief and i guess with my point was coming from a musical perspective is I think music, we talk about words, but sometimes it's very difficult for people going through grief to put things into words. I mean, I couldn't, as I said, I couldn't describe things at all. And music can be a way of expressing something without words, but it also could be a, a doorway to start talking with some somebody about something. And I think it also uh, can connect people together without that use of words, or maybe, as I said, to uh, start a conversation or start... You don't even need the conversation sometimes. Sometimes you, you listen to a piece of music, you connect with something, maybe something important to that person or, or a sad piece of music. And if you experience that with people, you can... Um, you sometimes don't need the words, or or they can come later if you need them. Um, Andy, would you want to? Well, no, I would. I would just add that um, to what Douglas said there, and that is that I, I have found that actually music to be a great companion through this time. Uh, and I know some people find their way through literature. I know that others find it through art. Others, but I don't. I'm not a performer. Um, but I have rediscovered music. Uh, I have rediscovered myself through listening to music uh, quite intensely, actually. Uh, so I totally understand what Douglas is, is saying, and I think it's an, in, an integral part of my life, certainly has become, where for many years, actually, the hubbub of life, being in a partnership, moving around, yeah, it, it wasn't. So I've reconnected, definitely, with music through this experience that I've had. I think we've talked a bit about some of the more informal ways in which we can, and the things we can do with us, you know, with ourselves through, through things like music and the arts. But I think we've also alluded to how there are more kind of organised ways of people talking about, about grief and bereavement. And Deborah, I know that obviously this has been a big part of your research. And I wonder what you'd like most like people to know in terms of what support is out there for people to be able to deal with grief and bereavement? So I think the first thing to say is that I think it's really important to say this, that there isn't a right way, there isn't a roadmap, there isn't anything you you should, there's no should in this, there really isn't. And I think um, for me, organisations that give you permission to, to grieve as you need to, when you need to, in the way you need to, are the ones that probably flourish and, and provide space where people can can be. And I, I'd pick out um, one in particular, actually, which is a, an organisation called Life, Death, Whatever. Um, and they have a, a number of things that they do. Um, they have an Instagram account, for example, where people just post 
very small, small things that they've learned or that they're experiencing in relation to death, dying and bereavement. Uh, they organise events. I've, I've contributed to some of those events. Um, and they have a book coming out, which is based around five things. It's five things I've learned. And and some of them will resonate with you and some of them won't. Some of them, some of them may be curious, whatever. But I guess the, the thing that they, I think they do so successfully is that they provide a space for people to be as they need to be. And they allow people to feel seen and heard without ever having to, to talk or do anything more formal or, or more active than that. So I think that's very powerful. I think for some people, um, there can be value in going to something like a death cafe. Um, actually, for people who are recently bereaved a death cafe can be quite a difficult place because I think they tend to exist more for people to talk about death and dying when they're perhaps not in that the phase of of having been bereaved quite quite recently themselves so so that's a different environment that's a social environment very much community-led and then there are organisations like Cruise. So Cruise has been around a long time. Um, they're at the moment adapting their way of working to um, providing online and telephone-based resources. But I guess they're more a traditional counselling model. And I think, you know, in between all of those organisations, there are a whole host of others. So there's Marie Curie. Um, many hospices will have bereavement support attached to them. Um, many hospitals will have bereavement departments. I think it very much depends what people want. There'll be faith groups, um, all sorts of different settings. And and I think it's sometimes going to be a case, I've certainly found this with, with cancer support, um, of finding what works for you. So I'm a little bit allergic to some types of support that work very well for other people. But there are other things that, that I find very helpful. Um, and, and I Again, I go back to where I started. There's no should. Um, so it's finding your way through and, and trying, a, trying a couple on for size and maybe just watching and seeing what's out there before you engage more, more deliberately. Thank you. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about death cafes? I think it's, if you're not familiar with them, then, sure. then it seems... Yes. It's a curious thing. It could be um, yeah, it is. It is. It's a really curious thing. So I first became aware of them I don't know, maybe, probably about 10 years ago, but I might be, um, time Time is funny as you get older, so who knows whether it was 10 years ago or not. And they are um, events that are held, hosted in the community, so they might take place in a library or they might take place in a community hall, and they're open to absolutely anybody. They are facilitated events where you are served tea and cakes. So the idea is that it is it is social and the tea and cake matters uh, because it allows people to relax a bit um, and to, uh, to, to nurture together, actually. You create an atmosphere where you're nurturing people and you usually have two or three questions where... You, within ground rules that are usually about listening and not interrupting and not judging and valuing difference, you talk about what perhaps what you were brought up to think about death and dying. You might talk about how things have changed. So I, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic and I remember 
in my childhood, regularly being taken to strangers' houses to look at somebody who had died in an, in an open casket. And that was a, a, a normal Catholic thing to do. Um, my kids, who are in their 20s, have never been to a funeral. You know, there's, there's such, so you might talk about something like that. You might talk about um, the, what you think constitutes a good death, what that means to you. Um, and you listen and you talk and you reflect. And it is both as simple and as complex as that. And I think some people find it transformative. And the ones I've been to and I've facilitated them and I've participated, I've never left not changed in some way. And I, I don't mean a sort of Damascene, oh, that, everything I ever knew has changed. But, but just thinking about something somebody said or shared um, developed really altered and, and maybe that that reminds me a little bit of what grief is it's a kind of minute by minute altering of self and emotion and uh, place in the world and and, and death cafes a part of that for me anyway and Douglas Andy do you have any experience of death cafes or some of these other forms of support that Deborah was talking about um, I speaking for myself, I've not uh, engaged. I, I mean, I do have experience of death cafes, actually, uh, but uh, from a professional perspective, uh, I have attended them uh, uh, in in the field, working in the field of loneliness. You you find yourself in all kinds of odd places, believe me. Um, but I think uh, something I, I would like to pick up on, though, uh, that Deborah said, and, you know, we talk about interventions and we talk about support that's there, but actually the most significant support comes from those people around you. And then I kind of draw circles around this, those people around you, and then the outer circle, those, those neighbours, if you like, and then the wider community itself. And... With my own experience, it was kind of a parallel process running because my my late wife was Greek, and so whilst we were we, we were undertaking a process in this country, there was also a, a religious process uh, being undertaken in, in Greece, and that's where I first met uh, really shared grief, if you like, um, because one week after my wife had died. Uh, I was over there in Athens uh, and then whisked off to her hometown and there were several hundred people coming to bless me, kiss me, shake my hand, hug me. As I walked through the streets, people would cross the road to come and join me and to tell me, and my Greek is not fantastic, but I, I, so often I heard I was at your wedding. That was the, that was the thing that resonated <laughs> with me I kept on hearing it but actually what they were telling me was that they were sharing in my loss and I think that actually that was that that was that was a huge part of, of the start of my healing process was to recognize that actually my loss was was shared and I think also uh, stepping back into the UK um, hearing the stories of other people sharing their experience was positive, and I think that links with the Deaf Cafe work. I think people who were willing to take the risk to step forward rather than step back, knowing that I was a bereaved person, willing to take the risk to say the wrong thing, the truth is there isn't really the wrong thing to say. Not acknowledging the loss, 
not acknowledging the person that's gone, it might border on being somewhere near the wrong thing to do. But nothing's really wrong. Just ignoring is wrong. Thank you, Andy. I think that's really how kind of it really um, resonates. And, and I was wondering, Deborah, if you, if that's, and Douglas, whether that's been your experience as well, whether the kind of lack of shared grief is, is an issue. I think so. I think Andy put that so beautifully. And I think, you know, we could so easily misrepresent it as something that you need special skills to do, that you need to be part of some professional inner circle. There is no professional inner circle. We're all finding our way. And and actually that that willingness to, to say to someone, I am so sorry, you know, I, I am so sorry. And to acknowledge that and to to simply be with someone, to, to bear witness to that, I think, is, is so important. And, and actually, I've been to a funeral online in the last few weeks. And um, so there were two people from the family who were there um, and, the, and the rabbi. It was a Jew, Jewish funeral. Um, and then there were many, many, many of us all doing what we're doing now, which is talking through, through a computer. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, how will this be? And there were two things that struck me most powerfully. The first was that um, the music was more important than ever. We all, we all were still and listening to the music in a way that when the speech was, was happening in the funeral, that was more difficult because people were coming in and out. But, but the other thing that struck me was that afterwards we all um, stayed connected and, and talked about what we remembered about about Pamela, who was who was the person who had died, and the stories that made us laugh, and her recipes, and um, what we would have said had we been there, and 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 so although it was imperfect, we everybody seemed to recognise almost intuitively that we had to find a way, and part of the way was music, part of the way was sort of slightly odd virtual wake afterwards. Uh, part of it actually has been a WhatsApp group that's continued. And, and the way those communities grow organically, anything that facilitates that is a hundred times better than a, a model of grief that people work through, you know, systematically would, would be my take on it. Thank you. And, and Douglas, I, when I saw you nodding rather vigorously when talking about shared grief and how, mm. and how important it is. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, I think um, as well, I did some research into music and uh, in grief rituals around the world. And uh, I ended up getting slightly envious during my research that I felt some of the rituals I'd been through seemed quite poor. And, and what Andy was saying about the, the, the Greek uh, funeral and this huge sort of shared, shared grief is something I, uh, I kind of felt like I, I missed out on. And I think... Um, and there's quite a few issues here, and uh, part of it's to do with the decline of religion. And uh, uh, but sometimes in our modern world, we're very busy, and people are not very always very connected. And but there seems to be quite a, a lack, I guess, in uh, in how some funerals are, are, are carried out, and and how people share in that properly. And I think people can go to a funeral and feel quite. Uh, you know, even more isolated by it rather than feeling that sense of bringing together. And it's something I have no idea how to do, but it was something I'd love to sort of, you know, uh, uh, 
to uh, get people somehow to you know come together in funerals and you know my perspective is obviously music so using music to do that I love um, Deborah you saying that the music became so important I, 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 in the online funeral and I think it's because it gets you on the same emotional wavelength and means you can share that same moment in, in, in feeling and time so yeah I think it's very important to share yes I think that we are in a sense we've removing from one set of ways of dealing with grief um, to having to create new ones, aren't we? Mm, and, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of a dynamic process. And I th- it's difficult on the individual. For, for, I guess, ways were a bit more uh, um, set in stone. This is what happens at a funeral. And now it's a huge amount of pressure on individuals to say, you have to take control of your own grief and your own grief process and you know, uh, answer the biggest questions in your own way. And I think it's a huge burden. To, uh, it's one of the problems in the, in the modern world. But it's a huge burden to be put on. Uh, and so that sharing, and sharing experience uh, really helps, I guess, to lift that burden, especially if you feel it as an individual um, too much. Yeah, no, I think, I think yes, you're right. It, is, it must be, it is a real burden um, almost having that kind of extra uh, level of choice and uh, uh, while also and, and having so many more new things to navigate. Um, but I think it's one of the other things which I think we have to navigate in this context is... Um, that we, we we talk about kind of stages of grief when I think that people with real expertise in this area would say that um, that's kind of become a kind of caricature that isn't necessarily very helpful. Um, Deborah, I don't know if you'd be able to talk a bit more about, as it were, how we used to, this, this kind of Kubler-Ross caricature that we used to have and and how we can move beyond that. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 60s actually came up with, and many people will have heard this, um, she identified, maybe I'll put it that way, she identified five stages of grief. Um, And uh, for for those of you who don't know, they're denial, so that initial shock, um, this isn't happening, anger, so um, why is this happening, railing, if you like, against what's happened and, and the world, bargaining, if only then I will, um, if only I could, then I will. Depression, um, so low mood and, and despair even, and then acceptance. And I think what she did uh, was valuable because what she did was identify the, the maelstrom, if you like, of emotions. I think what happened um, perhaps hasn't been so helpful. So people have talked about it as stages of grief. Um, and I, I don't think as we've developed our knowledge, and that might be lived experience. In fact, in many ways, I would say lived experience trumps theoretical knowledge every time when it comes to to death, dying and grief. But what we know is that actually people can feel contradictory emotions moment by moment. Um, They can feel emotions that aren't captured in that model um, and then think, oh my goodness, I'm I'm doing it wrong. they can be caught unawares 25 years later by a fury that somebody isn't there to, to share something. Um, so I think what we now understand is that these are, they're not even descriptors because that implies that there's, they're describing something that is universal. I, I think what they do is give us an insight into the sometimes contradictory, always complex, shifting emotions that play out in grief. And I think there are plenty of others as well, actually, um, that, that perhaps aren't, aren't captured there. So I, I prefer to think of them, I suppose, as a, as a way in, 
Um, some of them might resonate some of the time for some of the people, um, but perhaps the overarching thing is to to listen and attend to people carefully enough that you provide space for them to express emotions, including those which they might feel embarrassed about or that might be taboo. So sometimes people might be glad that someone has died. Now, there may be very complex reasons for that. And not to be able to say that for fear of that being an inappropriate emotion or being judged is going to be very difficult. Sometimes people will feel resentful that somebody has died. Sometimes they feel jealous that somebody has died and they're not the ones coping anymore with all the, the stuff that happens. And I think for me, Kubler-Ross is a reminder that the emotions are multiple and often really confusing. And that in thinking about grief, our job is to hear and attend to that without judgment. Thank you. I think that's. I think it's really helpful to to have that so so clearly explained. Um, Douglas, I saw you raising your hand. Is well, I was flicking a fly, but I, I was also nodding my head in agreement. I mean, when I went through grief, I experienced everything at the same time, and then nothingness, and then everything at the same time, and uh, very much experiencing nothing like the the, the uh, stages of grief as uh, depicted in the model. So I'm just very much in agreement that with, with that. I, I I might add to. Um, the point that we're at here, that actually the grief comes at the oddest time. It really hits you just when you don't expect it. Mm. Uh, it can be a smell, it can be a song, it can be, I don't know, a photograph, it can be, I mean, there's a, the list must be endless, really, of what can connect you uh, to your grief. And I think one of the things that, we really should talk about is what can people do to support those people that are experiencing grief? Because so often the hurdle to engaging is what can I say? What can I, what can I do? And um, I, I know it's very difficult, but I think as I've previously said, that the main thing you mustn't do is do nothing. And we have, a, we have a great tradition in this country um, of sending cards uh, and I see you know, with sympathy cards, condolence cards as part of the process, but they are not the end of the process. <laughs> and, and, you know, this country worldwide, we buy more cards per head of the population, 33 greeting cards per person per year purchased in this country. But that doesn't absolve you from your responsibility to take two steps forward, to listen. It's important that the grieved tell their story it is and it's important that you acknowledge the loss and you acknowledge the person that's that's gone you can say their name say their name say their name if you've had that kind of experience yourself reassure them or if not be the friend be the brother be the sister show your value i think that's so important but don't end the process with a card, <laughs> yeah. I think I think it sounds, it sounds a real small point, but actually, I'm still trying to work out. I got a card from someone called Carrie. I don't know who Carrie is. I think uh, the one thing that's come up a few times is the idea of listening, and it's something that's really easy to say. Uh, listen to someone. The most difficult thing to do. My own personal experience. Um, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, his dad died of cancer 
recently, and you want to ask how someone's doing. And I think I'm probably not the only person who's had this overwhelming urge to fill in the silence, fill in the gaps. So if you ask a brief person how they're doing, they might take a little while to get their thoughts together. And it's such a difficult thing to do is leave them that space. Don't fill in that 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 silence. Uh, it took me ages to to be able to do that. Um, um, but it's such an important thing, like people being listened to and heard that, hearing, having their story heard. That, that's healing in itself, I believe. I was wondering, as we come to the end of this podcast, if there are any particular final reflections that uh, any of you had. I think um, one of the things that that I would say is about having the courage to attend to somebody, and and that may not be by words. It, Absolutely. I very much doubt it would ever be by trying to fix it because you can't. If you're looking for a magic phrase that will somehow transform it, that's not going to happen. So I think there's something about attending to someone and that means being with them at their pace in the way they want to be and taking your cue from them and meaning it. Actually, I think so many people are very well intended, have great intentions and and well motivated, but actually they don't follow through. Um, And so you can express this in in a number of ways. It can be a text, you know, holding you in my thoughts. Um, It can be a supper, you know, it can be noticing that it's, I'm guessing that there will be people who share and know about Angelica's birthday. And they might think about that with Andy in advance. They might ask him what he wants to do, if he wants to do anything. You know, it's those sorts of things. It might be thinking about Douglas on Mothering Sunday. It's, It's those kinds of things. And they're not done clumsily and in a kind of, oh my goodness, here I come way. They're just small acts of attention. And we can all do that. We've all got it in us. It's not magic, but it can be transformative. But it does take courage. Thank you, Deborah. Andy, Douglas? Well, I think uh, what Deborah's just said is so right, actually. Uh, I was never on Facebook uh, until I lost my wife. And all her friends said, well, we're all on Facebook. How do we get in touch with you? So I joined Facebook. And there's one little thing that comes with Facebook Messenger, which is a hand that waves. And some of those friends have got thousands of followers. I mean, literally, you know what? I used to see these hands appear, still do, and it's just a wave. But actually it says, I am thinking you of you. I'm holding you in my thoughts, and it is special. It does mean something. So Deborah's absolutely right. There is no wrong door on this one, apart from not stepping forward when actually that's what's required. Douglas, would you? I don't know. I, I think you both said it so well that I don't want to say anything else after that. <laughs> What's more to be said? <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you all very much. I feel like I've I've learned a lot. I think that we've learned about the importance of stepping forward. That the key thing to do is to do things, not to worry so much, get bogged down and worrying that it's not quite the right thing. Um, but also that there are services out there which can which can also help us and be really useful for people going through uh, going through grief and also perhaps to help us prepare for, for these issues as well. Before we wrap up completely, um, I feel like I should ask whether there are any social media handles that people would like to, uh, like to mention. So I'm at Deborah Bowman on Twitter. That's probably the only one anyone would want to look at. I'm not going to give you Instagram. There's just lots of terrible photos of me trying to run on there. That's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> 
So mine is uh, at Andy underscore Nazer, N-A-Z-E-R, on Twitter. But I would also add uh, that of my organization or our organization, the Campaign to End Loneliness, which is at End Loneliness UK. And uh, if anyone's looking for some resources around uh, grief, bereavement, loneliness, do check out our website, campaigntoendloneliness.org.uk. Douglas. Yeah, I can't um, remember my Twitter off the top of my head. Um, I've got I've got two websites. One for me as a uh, musician, which is uh, uh, www.douglasmcgregormusic.com, and I've got an album coming out. Uh, by the time this comes out, it will have come out the week before, uh, which is the music I wrote uh, during my experience of delayed grief, and I've written quite a lot in uh, in blog form on that as well. And so if anyone wants to uh, have a look at that, you can find that on the website. Also, my other website is www.songsoflossandhealing.com. Um, this is quite a new website, uh, but I'm just trying to uh, explore the relationship between uh, uh, music and loss. And there's some podcasts and uh, and some videos and some information there if anyone wants to look a bit further into music and grief and loss. Fantastic. Thank you all very much. As I wrap up, I should say that this um, Acton podcast uh, is brought to you by Thrive London Citywide Network to improve the mental health and well-being of all Londoners. And I think that um, I've certainly learned a lot today to uh, to help me and to help me be someone who can be more useful to those around me as well. So thank you all very much and thank you for listening.